Good evening, my friends. I hope it is midnight wherever you are. Let's imagine that it's the witching hour. Why don't you turn out all the lights? Yes, even that one. That's better. My name is Josh Hitchens, and I am your host tonight. Welcome to Going Dark Theater, and this midnight I will tell you the tale of the Borden Tragedy, Part 3. August 4th, 1892, the day of the murders, has now come and gone. On August 5th, the autopsied bodies of Abby and Andrew Borden were removed from the dining room table and finally taken to the mortuary to be prepared for burial. Lizzie and Emma spent much of this day washing away their father and stepmother's bloodstains from the floors and walls of the sitting room and the guest bedroom on the second floor of the house. That day, Lizzie and Emma published an ad in the Fall River Globe newspaper. It read, $5,000 reward. The above reward will be paid to anyone who may secure the arrest and conviction of the person or persons who occasioned the death of Mr. Andrew J. Borden and wife. $5,000 in 1892 is a little over $146,000 in today's money. Because no will of Andrew's was ever found, and because it was forensically determined that Abby was undoubtedly killed first, Andrew's entire fortune now belonged to Emma and Lizzie. The reward was never claimed. Also in that day's paper was an interview with one of Lizzie and Emma's uncles, Hiram C. Harrington, who was married to Andrew Borden's only sister, Luana. Harrington had visited the Borden house on August 4th after the murders were discovered. When the police had questioned Lizzie that day, they asked her if she knew of anyone who her father had bad feelings about, or if she knew anyone who had bad feelings about Andrew. Lizzie named her uncle. Hiram C. Harrington, saying that he and her father had been on bad terms for years. Well, on August 5th, the next day, Hiram C. Harrington took his revenge on Lizzie in print. In his interview, he made an incredibly damning statement When the perpetrator of this foul deed is found, it will be one of the household. 
I had a long talk with Lizzie yesterday, Thursday, the day of the murder, and I am not at all satisfied with statement or demeanor. She was too solicitous about his comfort and showed a side of character I never knew or even suspected her to possess. She helped him off with one coat and on with another, and assisted him in an easy incline on the sofa, and desired to place an afghan over him, and also to adjust the shutters so the light would not disturb his slumber. This is something she could not do, even if she felt, and no one who knows her could be made to believe it. She is very strong-willed and will fight for what she considers her rights. She is not naturally emotional. Harrington also pointedly added, I am convinced that Emma knows nothing whatever about the crime. Even 24 hours after the murders, even members of the extended Borden family were closing in on the two most likely suspects, the only people in the house at the time Abby and Andrew were killed, Bridget Sullivan, the maid, and Lizzie Borden. Huge crowds were still gathered outside the Borden house on 2nd Street, and the whole town of Fall River was buzzing with rumors, questioning who could have committed such a violent, bloody act. Uncle John Morse decided he needed to mail a letter. Rather than entrust it to one of the many policemen who were guarding the house, Uncle John decided he had to deliver the letter to the post office himself. He slipped out of the house and mingled with the crowds unnoticed and made his way to the post office. However, when John Morse exited the post office, he was recognized. A mob of nearly a thousand people began to chase him through the streets of Fall River. A police officer named John Devine intervened and got Morse back to the house safely. What was in John Morse's letter? who it was addressed to, and why he felt it was so vital that he not take the chance of anyone seeing its contents, is yet another unknown mystery in this strange case. Dr. Seabury Bowen made his formal statement to the Fall River Police on August 5th and included Abby Borden's frantic visit to him on August 2nd, two days before her death, where she told him she feared she and Andrew were being poisoned. The police seized on this information and began questioning pharmacies in the area, asking if anyone had recently attempted to buy poison. They hit pay dirt almost immediately. Eli Bentz, pharmacist at Smith's Drugstore in Fall River, told the police that there had been someone who attempted to purchase poison in the past week. That person was Lizzie Borden. 
Bentz said Lizzie had entered Smith's drugstore carrying a sealskin cape, the same one that her father Andrew had given her as a present to take with her on the grand tour of Europe. She asked Eli Bentz to sell her ten cents worth of prussic acid, which is another name for the liquid form of hydrogen cyanide, to kill some insects in her cape. Because prussic acid was poisonous, Bentz informed Lizzie that he could not sell it to her without a doctor's prescription. According to Bentz's testimony, Lizzie became visibly angry and told him she had purchased it in the past with no trouble at all. He still refused to sell it to her, and she left. When the police confronted Lizzie about this that day, she denied ever having gone to Smith's drugstore. However, another clerk and a customer both corroborated Eli Bence's testimony, saying they had observed Lizzie's attempt to buy prussic acid. The date she did this was August 3rd, 1892 the day Uncle John Morse had arrived at the Borden house, the day before Abby and Andrew Borden were murdered. Another witness was also found who testified they had seen Lizzie Borden attempt to buy the same poison at a different pharmacy on an earlier date. Why did Lizzie do this? Again, we cannot know for certain. There was another piece of evidence discovered in the house. In the sitting room, the same room where Andrew Borden was murdered, a policeman discovered a book about different medicines. The spine of the book was broken in such a way that it naturally fell open to one page. On that page was the entry for prussic acid describing its use and the fact that it was poisonous. The funerals of Abby Durfee Gray Borden and Andrew Jackson Borden were scheduled for the following day, August 6th. With the police now knowing that she had attempted to purchase poison the day before the murders, Lizzie must have known the eyes of the law were on her. Victoria Lincoln writes eloquently of the funeral on August 6th in her book A Private Disgrace, Lizzie Borden by Daylight. The coffins were placed end-to-end end in the dining room. They were of unfinished wood masked in black cloth. On Andrew's body lay a wreath of ivy, on Abby's bouquet of white roses and ferns. Only the back of Abby's skull had been shattered, and Andrew had one cheek cuddled into the pillow when he died. Now, turned good side up, Andrew appeared only to repose in a deeper sleep, 
and the press reported that he both that both looked wonderfully peaceful. Lizzie took her last look at Andrew at rest, with her gold ring still on his little finger. Suddenly, Lizzie bent down and kissed him. Lizzie did not wear black at the funeral, and Emma did not wear the customary mourning veil. A crowd of three or four thousand people gathered as close to the Borden house as the police would allow to see the coffins of Abby and Andrew Borden make their final journey to Oak Grove Cemetery. The graveside service was closed to the public, and they kept a respectful distance from the family and close friends who gathered near the two open graves in the Borden plot. Andrew would now be laid to rest next to his first wife, Sarah Morse, and the body of their daughter, Alice, who had died young, and Abby, would be beside Andrew. The two coffins were lowered into the ground, and the mourners dispersed. However, the bodies of Abby and Andrew Borden were not buried immediately following their funeral on August 6th. The police wanted their skulls as evidence, so back to the mortuary the corpses went. The undertaker decapitated Abby and Andrew and boiled and defleshed their skulls and also made plaster casts of each skull to be used as additional evidence later. While the funeral was going on, Police searched the empty Borden house for a blood-stained dress. They did not find one. After Emma, Lizzie, and Uncle John Morse returned to the Borden house after the funeral, John Morse asked the police's permission to bury Abby and Andrew's blood-stained clothing in the backyard. It had remained in the basement in the laundry room all this time. Permission was granted, and John Morse buried the clothes in the backyard, under medical examiner Dr. William Dolan's supervision. Not long after this was done, the mayor of Fall River, John Coughlin, and Marshal Rufus Hilliard paid a visit to the Borden house and tactfully suggested it might be better for all of them if the family did not leave the house. For a few days. Emma nodded, but Lizzie was surprised. Lizzie asked, Why? 
Is there anyone in this house suspected? I want to know the truth. Mayor Coughlin answered her, a fact that was to have enormous consequences for the events yet to come. He said to Lizzie, Well, Miss Borden, I regret to answer, but I must answer. Yes, you are suspected. Lizzie's response was quiet and calm. She said, I am ready to go now. And then Emma said, Well, we have tried to keep it from her as long as we could. The mayor and Marshal Hilliard then awkwardly explained that Lizzie was not under arrest, but that the family should not leave the house. Uncle John Moore said only one thing during this conversation, and it was revealing. He asked, How will we get our mail? The mayor said all their mail would be brought to the house for them, and John Morse responded to this with silence. One wonders again what was in that letter he was so desperate to mail the previous day. Emma Borden escorted the mayor and Marshal Hilliard out, saying, We want to do everything we can in this matter. Lizzie and Emma's friend Alice Russell was still staying in the house with the family. After the mayor and the marshal had gone, Emma asked Alice if she wouldn't mind changing beds with her that night. So, Emma Borden moved into the bedroom that had been shared by Abby and Andrew. Emma never slept in her actual bedroom, which was connected with Lizzie's, ever again. The next day, August 7, 1892, was a Sunday. Alice Russell left the Borden house to attend church, but then she decided not to go and returned to the house. Emma let her in. Alice and Emma went into the kitchen, where they found Lizzie standing in front of the stove, holding a dress in her hands. Emma asked Lizzie what she was doing. Lizzie replied, I'm going to burn this old thing up. It is all covered with paint. She then began to rip the dress into pieces and began feeding them into the burning fire. Alice Russell said, I wouldn't let anyone see me do that, Lizzie, if I were you. Perhaps Alice Russell was thinking of the police searching the house for a stained dress. How had they missed this one? Both Emma and Alice watched Lizzie burn the dress. Then Alice said, I'm afraid, Lizzie, the worst thing you could have done was to burn that dress. I have been asked about your dresses. Lizzie turned to Emma and Alice and replied, Oh, what made you let me do it? Why didn't you tell me? 
Alice Russell had no answer. She went upstairs, leaving Emma and Lizzie alone in the kitchen. The inquest into the murders of Abby and Andrew Borden began on August 9th. Its proceedings were closed to the public, and it was not a trial, and as it was not a trial, neither Lizzie Borden or any of the other witnesses called were represented by a lawyer or informed of their rights. Hosea Knowlton was the district attorney who questioned all the witnesses. Most were questioned very briefly, except for Lizzie Borden and Bridget Sullivan. Knowlton questioned Bridget even longer than he did Lizzie, but her testimony remained consistent. Still, Knowlton never stopped believing that Bridget had to have some knowledge of the crime, even if she was not the murderer herself. Lizzie Borden's inquest testimony was catastrophic for her. Under Hosea Knowlton's relentless interrogation, she gave several conflicting statements about where she was and what she was doing when Abby and Andrew were murdered. Here is just one example from the transcript of the inquest detailing where Lizzie was when her father, Andrew, returned home early. Questions asked by Hosea Knowlton and answers by Lizzie Borden. Where were you when the bell rang? I think in my room upstairs. Then you were upstairs when the bell rang. I don't know sure, but I think I was. Did you come down before your father came in? I was on the stairs coming down when she let him in. Lizzie is speaking of Bridget here, and even Hosea Knowlton seemed astounded. Lizzie had just admitted to being upstairs after Abby Borden was murdered. The questioning continues. You remember, Miss Borden, Hosea Knowlton said. I will call your attention to it to see if I have any misunderstanding, not for the purpose of confusing you. You remember, Miss Borden, that you told me several times that you were downstairs and not upstairs when your father came home. You have forgotten that, perhaps. At this point, the usually calm and poised Lizzie Borden became upset and flustered, replying, I don't know what I have said. I have answered so many questions and am so confused, I don't know one thing from another. Lizzie may have had reason for her confusion. Dr. Seabury Bowen had been lightly sedating her with morphine in the days since the murders, another fact that would become significant later on. 
Jose Knowlton then asked Lizzie about the moment she discovered the body of her father. Describe anything you noticed at the time. I did not notice anything, Lizzie Borden replied. I was so frightened and horrified, I ran to the foot of the stairs and called Maggie. I said, go for Dr. Bowen, I think father is hurt. Did you know he was dead? No, sir. This was too much. Bridget had already testified that Lizzie's words to her were, Someone has killed father. And Lizzie had also said the same to Adelaide Churchill, another witness, moments later. Anyone who took one look at Andrew Borden's body in the sitting room would know immediately he had to be dead. Lizzie was lying, and Knowlton escalated his interrogation. Hosea Knowlton said, You saw him. You went into the room, saw his face. You saw where his face was bleeding. Did you see the blood on the floor? You saw his face covered with blood. Did you see his eyeball hanging out? See the gashes where his face was laid open? Again and again, Lizzie answered, No, sir, no, sir, no, sir, no, sir, no, sir, no, sir, until finally she covered her face with her hands and the inquest was stopped for a few minutes until she composed herself. The inquest ended on August 11, 1892, one week exactly after the murders. Marshal Rufus Hilliard gathered Lizzie, Bridget, Emma, and the Borden family lawyer Andrew Jennings into a small room in the courthouse. Hilliard turned to Lizzie and said, I have here an order for your arrest. I shall read it if you so desire, but you have a right to waive the reading. Lizzie Borden replied, You need not read it. Emma Borden broke down and sobbed, shaking uncontrollably. Bridget Sullivan said nothing. The next day, August 12, 1892, Lizzie Borden entered a plea of not guilty. She was taken to a jail in the city of Taunton, a town eight miles north of Fall River. The jail in Fall River had no cells fit for female prisoners. There had never been one held there. On August 16, 1892, under the cover of darkness, the bodies of Abby and Andrew Borden were finally buried in the ground at Oak Grove Cemetery. Their corpses 
were headless in their coffins. Lizzie Borden returned to Fall River on August 22, 1892, for a preliminary hearing presided over by Judge Josiah Blaisdell, who had also presided over the inquest. Once again, testimony was heard from witnesses. Lizzie did not testify this time, although her inquest testimony was offered into evidence and read aloud in court. On September 1st, 1892, Judge Blaisdell gave his judgment memorable for his clearly anguished confrontation of the unimaginable possibility that a woman could commit these brutal murders, especially of her own father and stepmother. Judge Blaisdell said, The long examination is now concluded and there remains but for the magistrate to perform what he believes to be his duty. It would be a pleasure for him, and he would doubtless receive much sympathy if he could say, Lizzie, I judge you probably not guilty. You may go home. But suppose for a single moment that a man was standing here. He was found close by that guest chamber, which to Mrs. Borden was a chamber of death. Suppose a man had been found in the vicinity of Mr. Borden, was the first to find the body, and the only account he could give of himself was the unreasonable one that he was out in the barn looking for sinkers, that he was out in the yard. Then he was out for something else. Would there be any question in the minds of men what should be done with such a man? So, there is only one thing to do, painful as it may be. The judgment of the court is that you are probably guilty, and you are ordered committed to await the action of the superior court. On November 7th, 1892, the grand jury began its examination of the case of Lizzie Borden. At first, it looked as if the charges against Lizzie would be dropped. All the evidence against her was circumstantial. There were no blood stains found on her person, and the murder weapon could not be positively identified. But then... On December 1st, 1892, Alice Russell testified about seeing Lizzie burn a dress stained with red paint in the kitchen stove of the Borden house the day after Lizzie was informed by the mayor and Marshal Hilliard 
that she was a suspect in the murders. On December 2nd, 1892, the grand jury charged Lizzie Borden with three counts of murder, one for killing Abby, one for killing Andrew, and then, oddly, a third charge of murder for killing both of them. The official trial of Lizzie Borden was set to begin in six months on June 5, 1893, at which point Lizzie Borden would have already spent nine long months in a prison cell, and Emma Borden would live at 92 Second Street all alone with nothing but the ghostly memories of her dead father and stepmother to keep her company. The trial of Lizzie Borden would be the trial of the century. The whole world would be watching. Next time we meet, I will continue with the tale of the Borden Tragedy, Part 4. If you enjoy the podcast, I encourage you to leave a rating and a review if the spirit moves you. You can also like Going Dark Theater on Facebook and tell your friends. If you'd like to support the podcast, get access to episode transcripts and other spooky projects I'm working on, I have a Patreon, patreon.com slash Josh Hitchens. You can subscribe for as little as $1 a month. I am your host, Josh Hitchens. And you've been listening to Going Dark Theater. Until our next midnight together, I wish you all very pleasant dreams. And now...